This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Vacation alert from the three-row Jeep Grand Cherokee L. Mama and Papa want to go hiking. Los abuelos want to relax at the beach. And the kids want to go to the amusement park. With seating for up to seven, you and your loved ones can enjoy all these adventures and more. Jeep. There's only one. Visit jeep.com to learn more. Jeep is a registered trademark of FCA US LLC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, and welcome to Instant Genius, a bite-sized masterclass in podcast form. Each week, you'll hear world-leading scientists and experts talking about the most fascinating ideas in science and technology today. I'm Jason Goodger, Commissioning Editor at BBC Science Focus magazine. Chances are, many of us will have tried to drop a few pounds at some point in our lives. And it's likely that to do so, we will have cut down on the amount of calories we're consuming, exercised a bit more, and relied on willpower to stop ourselves reaching for the biscuit tin, bag of crisps, or can of fizzy drink. But is there a more effective method? In this episode, we catch up with Dr. Andrew Jenkinson, a bariatric surgeon based at University College London Hospital, and author of the book, How to Eat Well and Still Lose Weight. He tells us how our brains are hardwired to crave salty, fatty, sugary foods, and how gaining a better understanding of our biology can help us turn our unhealthy eating patterns into healthy ones for good. Before we get started talking about the book, it sounds from reading it that you wear quite a few hats. So I think first off, it would be nice if you were able to tell our listeners about your background and what it is you actually do. So my sort of main hat, Jason, is I'm a surgeon. I specialize in surgery for the stomach, gallbladder, hernias, and acid reflux. But quite a lot of my work is for weight loss. So it's called bariatric surgery. So I do operations that either bypass or remove quite a lot of the stomach to help people reset their weight. And actually, the surgery, it's really, really helpful for people. It's life-changing. You know, they'll lose 40, 50 kilograms and basically have a new life. And these people have usually been dieting for decades on end, and they just can't do it with supposed willpower and whatever. 
the reason that the book was inspired was actually because I got into this area of surgery and I was seeing so many patients and thinking, why would you want me to remove your stomach? Why can't you just go to the gym and go on a diet like all the nutritionists tell you? But it's not that easy. And when you look into it, and we'll come into this sort of a little bit later, it's not about the calorie, it's about what the food does to you as a drug which we will come on to. So that's my sort of main job. And then I got into obviously writing and being an author. I also do uh, a little bit of work abroad in the UAE now and again, medical legal. Yeah, so quite a few jobs, trying to keep it interested and varied. So you mentioned there the bariatric surgery. And I think in the UK at the moment, and as it is in most parts of the world, most people are talking about the overwhelming number of people that are overweight or obese. So how big a problem is that? I think it's a massive problem in the Western world that's going to probably contribute to bankrupting the healthcare systems. So we've got in America, a third of people are morbidly obese. That's obese to a level that's affecting their health. In Europe, it tends to be around about a quarter. Massive proportions of these people have type 2 diabetes, blood pressure, sleep apnea, joint problems, there's increased risk of cancer with obesity. So these things all cost a lot of money. For the first time ever, we're seeing life expectancy decrease because of obesity. And we've got new treatments on board, so the injection treatment. But these treatments are massively expensive if you roll them out to millions and millions and millions of people, and those people then just become dependent on them. So obesity is a massive economic and health problem that needs to be addressed. But the first thing it needs to be is understood, which is where sort of my first book, Why We Eat Too Much, and then this follow-up book, How to Eat and Still Lose Weight, come in. Obesity is not caused because there suddenly is a lot of tasty, high-calorie food available to a population. It comes about because that food acts in a way that is similar to a drug which blocks our normal weight regulation pathways. And these weight regulation pathways can be seen, you know, wild animals have very similar pathways. We don't suddenly see, for instance, a pride of lions becoming morbidly obese and fat and not being able to move around because suddenly there's too many antelope to eat. It doesn't happen. So in the wild, we can see populations of different animals do not suddenly become obese and unwell. So it's something in the food that causes this. And the book highlights these sort of drug-like interactions between food and our bodies and actually also our minds. So moving on from that, in the book, you mentioned the huge influence of hormones on somebody's body weight. And in particular, you say leptin. Yeah. is the master controller of our weight. So first off, what is leptin and how does that work? So leptin is a hormone that a lot of doctors and medical students are not that familiar with. They may remember years ago having an hour lecture on it, but actually it's you know profoundly important to this healthcare crisis and economic crisis that we're running into now. Leptin is a hormone that works in the wild to regulate wild animals' weights and should work in humans in the same way. It's a hormone that comes from our fat cells, and the fatter we get, the more leptin we get. The level of leptin acts like a signal to our weight control center in our brain, a little area called the hypothalamus, which is in actual ultimate control of where our weight is. It affects our appetite and our metabolism. When we eat particular types of food, that food can sometimes have the effect of blocking the leptin signal. So it blocks our normal weight loss signal. Particularly, I mean, we all know that sugar and refined carbohydrates, so processed foods, cause obesity. But we sort of think it's because they've got too many calories and they're too tasty. It's not. It's because they put up our level of insulin and insulin blocks leptin. Once you lose control of leptin, your brain can no longer gauge how fat or thin you are. 
the analogy in the book is it's a little bit like when you're riding in your car up the motorway and you see that the fuel gauge is on empty so you sort of panic and want to pull in and, and go to the petrol station but when you fill up you realize the tank's already full you know the problem is the petrol gauge meter is broken and this is what happens in leptin resistance so you are clearly overweight visibly overweight but your brain can't see that it actually is sending you opposite signals of you're fading away you know the tank is empty at least it's so massively misunderstood by healthcare professionals it's pretty simple you know leptin resistance is a signaling failure that causes the opposite signals to occur in the hypothalamus that should occur so this is why actually you know a lot of my patients who are really seriously overweight will admit to me that they binge eat in private it's embarrassing for someone who's you know, 25 stone to be you know in mcdonald's or whatever just gorging themselves but the signal they get from their leptin is that their tank is empty so they will get an absolutely voracious appetite and need to eat because even they don't understand the condition they get a very low self-esteem and think you know they're greedy and, and everything that everyone else says about them is true so it's actually quite a heartbreaking condition that is very misunderstood and very visible so another sort of topic you bring up is a person's weight set point so I'd personally never heard of that before. So what is it and what can affect it? So yeah, the first book sort of introduces the weight set points. Sometimes we call it the weight anchor. If you imagine you're like a ship and you're attached to an anchor and the anchor is sort of down, you can't really sail away from that area. And it's the same with your weight anchor. So your weight anchor might be set to the overweight or even obese category. Now you can try and sail away from it by thrashing yourself in the gym or going on low calorie diets, but your weight control center and your brain will pull you back to where it wants you to be. And this is your weight set point. And it's determined by a number of things that you can change, but actually also one thing that you can't change, so your genes. We all know of people who are naturally slim and can eat whatever junk they want, and they don't seem to put on weight. So they're lucky. But actually, a quarter to a third of the population have genes where they have a propensity to put on weight if they're exposed to the Western diet and the Western sort of snacking and stress environment. So it's a combination of your genes, but also the weight gain genes are triggered by environment. So the absence of fresh food and the availability of sugar, refined carbohydrates, processed foods. We can go on to the other things that cause weight gain triggers, fructose and vegetable oils. All these things are just there in the Western diet. If you go to a supermarket, everything's got them in apart from the vegetable section. So if you happen to live in an environment where you get your food from a supermarket, which is where most people do in the Western world these days, you're at a real disadvantage, particularly if you have this sort of smokescreen, not a deliberate thing, but just a misunderstanding from doctors and nutritionists saying you've got to count your calories. It's a load of rubbish. It's all about what the food does to you as a drug. CeraVe facial moisturizers with SPF protect skin against damaging UV rays and continuously deliver three essential ceramides to help restore skin's protective barrier so it can lock in moisture. Non-greasy, fragrance-free, and won't clog pores? With CeraVe, skin feels hydrated and looks healthy all day. CeraVe facial moisturizers with SPF from the number one dermatologist recommended facial moisturizer brand. Okay, so you mentioned there a couple of times processed food. There's a lot of discussion about processed food in the media in general at the moment, but what exactly are they? I mean, there's a fantastic development actually recently that actually defines processed foods for the first time. This came around sort of 15 years ago from Brazil, who are really ahead of us as far as these definitions and actually their public health on food. 
we know pretty much all food is processed in some way, unless it's literally some fruit literally just picked from a tree. There's sort of old-fashioned processing like pickling and salting and things like this to preserve foods. And there's cooking, which is a type of processing to make food more eatable, more chewable. But ultra-processed foods are a different thing. This is a category of food, not your traditional processing, but something that's come in over the last you know, 30 or 40 years where food is engineered. So, for instance, foods that may have helped contribute to cooking a recipe, such as sugar or flour, become the main ingredient of a processed food, a manufactured food. And these foods are designed you know, by food scientists. Because they're extremely bland naturally, they have colorings and flavorings and obviously emulsifiers and things that make them sort of crunch and taste good in the mouth. So these are engineered foods to really light up our reward pathways in our brains. Obviously, we go back quite a few hundred thousand years as humans to the origins of Homo sapiens from Homo erectus. And we have quite vulnerable brains as far as food is concerned. We love food that is bright and sweet and it's got a lot of calories. Those foods really light up our dopamine reward pathways and we then seek signals for that food in the future. So we're constantly on the lookout for this reward. Food companies, not in a cynical way, but just in a way to increase profits compared to another company, understand our vulnerable human brain. They understand that if they engineer a food that is bright, sugary, colorful, and feels good in the mouth, and it has a colorful wrapper, so we're reminded of it when we see it or when it's advertised, they have the ideal product. It trumps natural foods. It tastes better than natural food. It looks better than natural foods, but unfortunately, it acts like a drug. So it will have a massive propensity of sugar, refined carbohydrates, fructose, flavorings, and usually vegetable oils, all of these things really interfere with that weight control hormone leptin. And from having, you know, a very natural self-regulation of our weight, just like, you know, we don't have to worry about how much water we drink, you know, it's self-regulated. From having that natural regulation, suddenly it's out of control because we're eating the wrong foods. So this is why a lot of us tend to crave these foods, even though we know that they're no good for us. Yeah. So all of us do. I mean, one of the premises of the book is if you really understand what this type of food does to you, not only from a physical, you know, hormonal point of view, switching off your weight regulation pathways. If you don't suffer with obesity, it can cause inflammatory conditions, you know, Western diseases, sort of asthma, allergies, eczema, things like that, fibromyalgia. If you start to understand what these types of foods do to your body, but then also understand how the food environment works as far as your cravings, you know, your habits, these actions that you've done repetitively, you know, how many times you've had a McDonald's or whatever, we know that the process, you're going to see the advert, you're going to crave it, you're going to go there, it's going to be all too easy to order it, it's going to taste great, maybe not an hour later, but when you're eating it, it's going to taste fantastic. But these actions are carved into our brain and become almost habitual subconscious things for some people who eat these things regularly. If we understand all of this, then we are almost changing our personality. By understanding, we get it. It's then much easier to change towards healthier foods without using willpower. It's like, no, I understand it. I get it. I don't want to eat that anymore. It's not, I'm using willpower. I'm going to give up McDonald's. It's a totally new way of thinking and trying to change your habits and the type of foods that you eat in order to, over the long term, improve your health. 
not just for weight loss, but also for these inflammatory diseases. And that's the sort of premise of the book. Understand what food does to you, what processed food does to you in a bad way, what healthy foods do to you in a really good way, phytochemicals, antioxidants, these things that fight inflammatory disease, make you live longer. All of these things, once you get it, you'll start to crave that type of food. You won't be craving a McDonald's anymore. And the back of the book has got some really sort of tasty, it's called Global Kitchen, so like some recipes from around the world, which some of them will substitute things like rice for buckwheats. They tend to have really great omega-3 to 6 profiles. We haven't sort of discussed that yet, but that's something that is like an antidote to vegetable oils and inflammation. So you've mentioned a couple of times here calories and the misconception that surrounds them when it comes to this sort of thing. So first off, what are we actually talking about when we talk about a calorie and what's their role in this in the wider picture? Well, we need calories to live. So a calorie is a unit of energy. It's stored in plants. Plants store carbohydrates and energy in the cellular matrix. And whether it's processed foods that's been derived from plants originally, or whether it's fresh plant food or animals that have eaten the plant, they contain these carbon bonds that, when broken, release energy. And we use that energy to live, to heat our bodies, heartbeat, move around. The interesting thing is that 70% of the energy that we use as humans is even before we move. So this is called our basal metabolism. And it basically just runs our immune system, as I said before, heating, breathing, heart rate. The thing that's slightly misunderstood by people who are totally focused on calories is the body can get rid of calories very easily. It can switch up our basal metabolism by six or 700 kilocalories per day. This is the same as a 10K run or a large three-course meal, or it can switch it down. It's almost like we have this metabolism that's like an inner dimmer switch that can be turned up bright or it can be turned down. If we go on a low-calorie diet, we easily, within a couple of weeks, adapt to low calories by switching our metabolism down. Suddenly, weight loss stops. Most of us actually overeat when you look at the amount of calories that we consume. And we should be putting on a hell of a lot more weight than we are. But actually, our bodies are trying to fight that by increasing our metabolisms, which is actually why we have a bit of a Western epidemic of high blood pressure and things like that. It's a way of the body increasing our basal metabolism by increasing our heart rates and blood pressure, just expending more energy via this thing called the sympathetic nervous system. The crux of it is, Jason, that calories, obviously, we need from food to survive. But we can't really manipulate them to manipulate our weight down or up. Our brains are in control and it will just say, okay, we've got low calorie diet coming or in a famine situation, we're just going to turn down that dimmer switch and not burn as much off. And then obviously you get these other hormones that make you really want to go and eat and seek high calorie foods when you're on a diet. So another thing that people will often say, I think you touched on it earlier, if you do want to lose weight, you have to do two things. You have to eat fewer calories and move more. So what role does exercise have to play in all of this? If you can afford to go to the gym for an hour and a half, six days a week, and do very vigorous activity during that time. So we're talking about expending maybe a thousand calories a day on exercise. This is like things that you can't do unless you're an athlete, because you're probably going to get injured anyway if you do that much activity. That can have an effect in the long term on your weight. But most people, the recommendation of half an hour, three or four times a week, isn't going to have any significant effect on your weight, maybe two kilograms in a whole year. Just like As I said before, our metabolism will become more efficient if we go on a diet and calorie restrict. It also becomes more efficient if we use a lot of energy up in the gym. If we go to the gym and do a half hour or 40 minute run and we expend 400 kilocalories, for instance, 
one, we're going to get actually quite hungry and probably, unless we have an iron will, consume those 400 calories. And if we don't, if we do have the iron will, actually, we're just going to burn 400 less when we sleep. So the body's in control, the metabolism's in control. The way of trumping it is to do both calorie restriction and vigorous activity, double whammy. Our metabolisms can't readjust more than about six or seven hundred kilocalories per day. So if you manipulate it to over a thousand, you will start to lose weight. It's extremely difficult, though. You know, you're going to be absolutely shattered and hungry. So it's often said that most attempts to lose weight by dieting fail. And this is something that we've sort of touched on there. What's your opinion on that? It's not about dieting. It's about diet. Okay. If you understand what various different foods do to your body as a drug, as it were, and you avoid those foods, you will lose weight. If you avoid sugar and highly refined carbohydrates, if you avoid fructose, which is a separate area of weight gain, and if you avoid vegetable oils, which again have detrimental effects on insulin, if you switch from those types of food, which tend to be processed food, towards less processed foods, home-prepared foods, you don't have to be hungry. You don't have to be irritable. You do have to use some time shopping and cooking, which actually, once you get into it, it's quite meditative and should improve stress levels. If you just change your lifestyle away from fast foods and processed foods and convenience foods towards a more old-fashioned way of eating, without any effort, your weight set point, your weight anchor will shift downwards and you'll lose a decent amount of weight, much more weight than if you went to the gym regularly. So we've covered an awful lot there, but as a sort of summing up question, say somebody's listening and they want to lose a bit of weight, other than buying your book, how should they make a start? I think once you understand how habits form, good habits and bad habits, it's just understanding, you know, what triggers sometimes the start of a bad habit. Maybe other people are like this. Maybe they eat mindlessly a little bit in the evening over whatever is on Netflix or Prime. What triggers that? Why do you need to eat that type of food? Why don't you replace that type of food with, for instance, a vegetable charcuterie board? You know, chop up a load of fresh vegetables. They're fantastic for you. Sprinkle a little bit of salt on. Have that instead of toxic foods. So it's all a little bit about identifying bad habits and trying to slowly change them into better habits. When we give something up, we're all going to crave that food, for instance, sugar or chocolate or whatever. A good method of trying to fight that crave is to actually become aware of the crave, go what I call crave surfing. So you become very aware of the intensity of the crave, that feeling of wanting something, and it will crescendo, it will go up and up and up and become more intense. And then you realize, oh, okay, it's going down again now. It will come in a few waves, but every wave will be shallower. Rather than trying to ignore the crave, actually concentrate on it and realize that you've gone through it. It's okay. And the third thing you can do is a lot of people eat because they're stressed. Processed and sugary foods are like a drug to us. It's the same as a cigarette or a glass of wine, you know, gives us a good feeling. If you can somehow control your sort of internal stresses without resorting to drugs, including food, you're much more likely to succeed in getting along a path towards much healthier foods. And there's a de-stress toolkit there in the book, various different things. There's some really, really interesting breathing techniques. We know they work. It's explained how they work. They really do work. You can control how you feel by a breathing, different types of meditation. There's a particular one, which is actually, you don't have to try and relax or anything. You just become very aware of your surroundings and don't do anything else. And things like visualization. Once practiced, you may find one or two of them are really helpful for you. They really can help you just relax. And then you don't have to resort to drugs in the form of processed foods.
Thank you for listening to this episode of Instant Genius, brought to you from the team behind BBC Science Focus. That was Dr. Andrew Jenkinson. The current issue of BBC Science Focus magazine is out now. Pick up a copy wherever you buy your favourite magazines or download us on your preferred app store. You can also find us online at sciencefocus.com. Thank you.